Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today our program will be an encore presentation of a conversation I had with the late Governor James Edwards. Governor Edwards died in his Mount Pleasant home on December the 26th. He was one of the elder statesmen of South Carolina, a man whose election as governor became a landmark in the growth of modern two-party politics in South Carolina. As president of the Medical University of South Carolina from 1982 to 1999, he transformed that school into a major research university. I'll have this encore conversation with Governor Edwards, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the studio today is former Governor James Burroughs Edwards. And uh, first of all, Governor Edwards, welcome to the Journal. Thank you, Walter. It's wonderful to be here and wonderful to see you. Well, you know, we go back 30 years, 1974. Yes, we do. And it's been a nice, warm friendship. And I've well, enjoyed it. It's been mutual. But I was thinking about, you know, 1974, probably the furthest thing from your mind was that Jim Edwards was going to be governor of South Carolina. That's true. So let's talk about that. General Westmoreland, whom we both know, military hero, came back and decided to, he was going to run for the Republican. Well, he finally decided Republican. He wasn't sure at first which party he was going to run with. And then at the last minute, you jumped into the race. Why did you do that? Walter, that, that goes back to some, some background. Uh, John West recruited uh, the general to come down. And by the way, the general is a man I admire greatly. Mm-hmm. I, I admired him during the campaign. I admired him since then and admire more in his later years, and we've, we're close friends. And, and, and he's struggling now with Alzheimer's. Yes, he is. He's, he's got a problem, at, uh, and Kitsy's handling it very well. But uh, anyway, John West had recruited him to come down and run on the Democrat ticket, and for various reasons, a lot of people got into that campaign, wanted to came down and announced, and uh, for various reasons. He was trying to decide maybe he was in the wrong party, mm-hmm. that his chances would be better on the other side. So he made a statement that uh, he wasn't sure which party he was going to run in, but he was going to run for governor, either as a Democrat or Republican. And it made a lot of my Republicans really upset. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they felt that if uh, he were uh, elected governor, that John West would, and the Democrats would still be running it, even though it may be under the name of a Republican. And so they kept bombarding me day in and day out for me to get in the race. At this time, you were an oral surgeon in Charleston, but you were a state senator from Charleston. Yeah. That's right. I had uh, I served in the state senate two years. And uh, really, Walter, I was somewhat torn between my allegiance to my patients that I operated on on Monday and uh, left uh, Tuesday morning to come to Columbia to serve in the Senate three days. Then I had to go back. Of course, we had associates in the in the practice with me, Dr. Brock and uh, some others that we took in later on, uh, and they covered for me. But and very very nicely, I, I could not have done it without them. But I felt that the, I had an allegiance to the patients that I operated on. So I was torn between my practice and my dedication to the Senate job. And so when this came along, I thought to myself that, you know, if if by some miracle I was elected, I would, uh, you know, have a full-time job and would have to get out of the practice completely and would stop this uh, conflict that I had within myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing that I thought, uh, we Republicans, we always nominated by convention. Mm-hmm. And we held our conventions usually in uh, March and uh, the Democrats nominated by primary election, and they had their primary in June. Well, what we would do, we would nominate our our candidate, and that candidate would be sitting there getting no publicity, and the Democrats would get all the publicity because they had a primary that ran from the time we nominated our candidate all the way through until June. And so the Democrats were way ahead of us. PR-wise, mm-hmm. uh, no matter which one won, they were way ahead of us PR-wise. And so I felt like, well, you know, uh, if by some miracle I, I did win, I, it would solve this conflict within myself that I had between my patients and my political uh, job. And so, uh, and another thing, I thought that if I ran against uh, Westmoreland, it would give him a lot of publicity and give him an even start. Mm-hmm. at the starting gate when after the June primary was over. And it was our first statewide Republican okay. primary. Okay, so 74 is when the Republicans began to, it went from convention to 
to primary. Uh, to uh, that's right. To nomination by by primary instead of convention, and it was a big step, a great step forward for us. I was I really believe in the in the primary, but anyway, uh, you know the rest of the story. Uh, general Westmoreland was a wonderful general, wonderful leader. Uh, and a man I greatly respect, but, but he not, was not a good politician. He was not very good on the stump. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting, though, <laughs> is that all the pollsters had the general walking away, at least the press and the pollsters thought the general was going to walk away with it. And then lo and behold, the votes come in from Republican strongholds like Charleston and, and Greenville, and uh, Jim Edwards is the nominee of the Republican Party. It shocked everybody, including Jim Edwards, <laughs> <laughs> particularly Jim Edwards. What about Ann? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to tell you a little story. I think maybe, maybe she mentioned that on, a, on another show that she, she, you had her on this same program. But uh, one night she had been campaigning very hard up in the PD, and, uh, and I came home from campaigning somewhere, and Ann seldom ever cries, and I found her crying. She got in bed and started crying, and I said, I thought something terrible had happened or something was wrong. I said, Don, what, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. She said, you know, Jim, I, said, I, I got into this thing thinking that it would just be a few months and then we'd be back to a normal life. I said, but, you know, people are coming across the street shaking my hand and congratulating me and saying you're doing a good job. And, you know, I'm afraid to death I'm gonna, we're going to win this crazy thing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, not, not only did you win the primary that surprised everybody, uh, but then the Democrats got their house in disarray. I think Ann's statement came toward the end of the of the Democrat, you know, the final election. Yeah. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, for our listeners out there who might not remember 30 years ago is uh, Pug Ravenel was the Democratic nominee. Correct. Won the primary very, very handily. And then it was shown that he was not a legal resident of the state for the number of years required by the Constitution, and the state Supreme Court tossed him out. And then they had to have a special convention, and they nominated William Jennings, um, Brian Dorn, then a congressman from South Carolina, uh, from the 3rd District, to be the the nominee. And the party splintered because he was sort of the choice of the old guard, so to speak, and the— the young Turks who had pushed Ravenel were very, very unhappy, many of whom ended up supporting you. That's true. That's true. And it was a, it was a break for me. Everybody, you know, Pug came down and he had the first really Madison Avenue television campaign in, in the history of South Carolina. If you look back on it, nobody yeah. ever had that kind of campaign. And it was well done. His uh, PR person moved to South Carolina, as you know, uh, since then. But uh, it was so well done that everybody thought that he was – going to sweep the, the whole thing and, and be governor. But he did make one mistake that was a pretty pretty big mistake during the campaign, early parts of his campaign. I ran against two people, as you, <laughs> as you were pointing out. I first ran against Pug in the first part of the campaign, and then in the second part when the Supreme Court ruled that Pug uh, was not qualified to serve as governor because he hadn't lived here for five years. Then they nominated Brian Dorn in a convention, mm-hmm. by the way, and so then I had to run against Brian Dorn. And uh, and both of them are nice people. Mm-hmm. They really are nice people. But uh, but Pug had made a statement uh, in one of his speeches, and he said that the uh, Senate of South Carolina is nothing but a den of thieves. That's almost a direct quote. And the next uh, Tuesday when I came up to to the Senate, there was a whole string of South Carolina state senators from around the whole state came to me. In fact, all ultimately all but five state senators who were, came. Who came were Democrats? Of the, all of them were Democrats. We had well, we had three. Gilbert was from Aiken was a was a Republican, and Tommy Hart and I were the two Republicans. We only had three in the whole Senate, mm-hmm. but uh, all but five of those Democrat senators uh, came over to me during that following week and said put my name on the list of supporters in my county. I'm going to work as hard as I can for you, Jim Edwards. I'm not going to let Pug Ravenel get the vote when he calls us a den of thieves. And every state senator, with the exception of five, were on my campaign committee after that. <laughs> and uh, in, a, in a way, I, I sometimes wonder what would have happened had the thing come to fruition with me facing Pug in a final battle. All the polls show that Pug was way ahead. 
at the time. But I, I wonder if that wasn't the swing point, the swinging point or changing point in that whole campaign. You had a lot of things sort of falling into place, but then your campaign, you mentioned that Pug Ravenel's was a Madison Avenue campaign. Your campaign wasn't any slouch either. Now, it's been 30 years, but it seems like I remember an ad that had you fishing or had you on a lake. Is that right? That was the most talked about political ad I guess ever hit South Carolina. I was uh, in an old bateau, an old boat in the marsh, throwing a cast net and uh, catching shrimp. And I pulled it up and I put four or five shrimp in my hand and they zeroed in on that those shrimp that I had caught with that cast. And I did it two or three times. And it, it just caught the imagination of the people, particularly in the upcountry, away from the coast. And everywhere I went, they asked me, you know, how do you throw that net? You know, where'd you get, where'd I get a net like that? <laughs> and it was really, a, it, it may have been one of the things that... Uh, well, I think it's what attracted young voters who today you would call environmentalists because that had not been so much of a, an issue in South Carolina, but it was beginning to be an issue, particularly in, in the coastal areas. And here was somebody they could identify with. First of all, you were relatively young. You were younger than, than Brian Dorn. Not younger than I am now. <laughs> we both were a lot younger than we are now. Uh, but, but also, you know, here was a man who cared about the environment. I mean, it's a very important part of your life still today. It is, very much so. Uh, and so, you know, I think there was a, a lot of interesting side issues in, in the campaign. And um, Anne may have been crying, but you were elected rather handily, as a matter of fact. 17,000 votes, I think, we won by. Yeah. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today our program is an encore presentation of a conversation I had with the late Governor James Edwards. Governor Edwards died in his Mount Pleasant home on December the 26th. But you were the first Republican governor in a Deep South state. Really, you know, I think I probably was the first elected Republican governor in South Carolina ever because you're the historian. Maybe you can tell me the former Republican governors were were appointed more or less by the Army of Occupation no, of the no, North. No, no, sir. No, sir. They were elected. Oh, were they elected? Yes, sir. But they were was elected. it an honest election? As honest as any other in South Carolina can be. <laughs> <laughs> Have we ever had a totally honest election in South Carolina? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> Obviously, the one where I, I was elected was honest. <laughs> Things are better now, but, you know, you're from Charleston, and the old Charleston city machines could always be counted on in the in the 1920s and 30s to come back with the number of votes they had, and then the ballot boxes were dumped off the, off the Grace oh. Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, has been known to happen down there. <laughs> uh, but... You were the first Republican governor of a Deep South state since Reconstruction. But given the fact that South Carolina had been considered up until the 1960s one of the most solidly Democratic, this was the state that gave Franklin Roosevelt 98 percent of the vote to turn around uh, and elect a Republican governor. People really sat up and took notice. But given some of the stories that you told today, it's clear from the beginning that you didn't run as a bipartisan candidate, but you had bipartisan support in getting elected. Here you are, Republican governor, with the legislature totally in the hands of the Democrats. We had 13 members of the House and two in the Senate after I was elected uh, governor. But you governed very, very effectively, even though they, quote, were the opposition. Well, thank you. Thank you. uh, You know, I've always, and I said it during the campaign, Walter, and I wish people would listen to this today, uh, my political colleagues. I always feel that when you're in a campaign, you should be as partisan as you can possibly be and explain the differences to the people out there, what the two parties stand for, what your party stands for, what the other party stands for that that I don't necessarily like. And then after you're elected, though, I feel strongly that you you are owned by the people of the state. And you're not Republican, you're not Democrat, you should be totally nonpartisan. Now, it's easier said than done, but uh, I tried to be as nonpartisan as I could be. And... uh, you know, some of my Republicans, even then, they wanted to know why I wasn't more partisan. Why didn't I remove everybody and put in all Republicans? But if I'd have done that, I'd have been dead because the Democrats would have polarized their forces against me, totally outnumbered me, and it would have been the worst thing I could have done. 
So the first thing we did was make more friends. Of course, I had made a lot of friends in the state Senate. Mm -hmm. Senator Dennis and uh, Senator Gresset mm -hmm. were very kind, and, uh, and there were people that I had great respect for, and they knew that. And so when I first was elected, the first thing I did, I said, Ann, we've got to use the mansion for some public relations with the General Assembly, and we need to focus on the House side because I have some friends on the Senate side. And we started entertaining the major committee chairman and other, other members, and finally we got down to the whole House and Senate at one time or another during those first few weeks of the legislative session. We had them over to the mansion and entertained them, got to know them, and they saw that I didn't have a forked tail and horns. <laughs> uh, and uh, really, I, I had... Uh, as, in fact, I think I had more support from the Democrats than, than some of the Democrat governors have had from their own party mm -hmm. since then. It was a, the basic fundamental mm -hmm. feeling that you should be nonpartisan when you're governing and when you, once you're elected. Unfortunately, I think for the state and the nation is that people have forgotten that they are governor or president or whatever of the whole country, not just of a party. And the partisanship that we, we're seeing now in the country is... <clears throat> is so nasty that it's very, very distasteful. It's got to change. It really has got to change. You know, you're talking about Franklin Roosevelt, and mm -hmm. he took, you know, this, this state by a wide margin. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I guess I'm proudest of looking, you know, across at this mm -hmm. stage, you look back and see, try to figure out what you've done, something good maybe, or some, all the bad things you try to forget. <laughs> but that is an ever-growing chapter in my book of life of mistakes I have made. <laughs> but... The thing that I'm proudest of is that I helped create two-party politics all across the South, not just in South Carolina. That's where I did most of my work. But we worked in, in Mississippi and Virginia and uh, Georgia and Louisiana and, and you know Alabama and Florida. And we finally got two-party politics established once and for all. And when you think of it, Walter, that little effort that we made to do that, if we hadn't done that, we'd have never had those great conservatives. And Richard Nixon was conservative from an international standpoint. Mm -hmm. He believed in strong military preparedness and believed that, uh, you know, we had to, mm -hmm. he believed in balance of power diplomacy, but when that broke down, he needed something to back it up. And then along comes Reagan, and Reagan builds our defenses with Cap Weinberger as his secretary of defense, builds our defenses to a point where even the Russians looked us in the eye and blinked mm -hmm. because of the power that we had. And we would have never had those great conservative leaders that believed in, in uh, strong national defense and those conservative principles that we Republicans have believed in for years. We would have never had those people elected, and we would have never had people that would do the things that Dick Nixon did. And I, I, I could list the things that he did. You know it better than I do, of course. With his balance of power diplomacy, he opened the, the uh, relationships with China. He put good conservatives on the Supreme Court. He built our military preparedness to a place where we could stand up in the face of uh, adversity in the world and meet any challenge that comes along. And then Reagan comes along, and he brings down communism and that wall without even firing a shot. But he could not have done it had he didn't have that military preparedness. Cap Weinberger built, you know, a 650-ship Navy and on and on. You know, we do have a strong defense, and, and Nixon was part of that, but then Nixon also helped get rid of the draft, and I think that was a tragic mistake. I, I really believe that young men should serve their country, and I, the all-volunteer force is fine, but I think we're having more and more public officials who have not participated in the military. They, sometimes they want to use it, and they don't know what the cost is. You know, Walter, you're absolutely right, but when you think of the situation we were in, uh, that Nixon was in, you know, it, it amuses me. Some historians blame that war on Nixon, and you know full well who started that war. Kennedy first sent the advisors and the first armed troops into Vietnam, and then along came Lyndon Johnson and, and escalated the war. And then along comes Nixon, gets us out of the war, but it's all of a sudden it's Nixon's war. And how do you explain that to me? 
Well, actually, the first advisors went in with Eisenhower, but then the troop first troops went in with 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 Kennedy. The first troops went in with with, with Kennedy. With Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, so you know you you've but the, the the whole question you know we had the domino theory then, but that we're, we're getting away from South Carolina here. <laughs> uh, but we're not getting away from two party politics. No, sir, we're not getting away from two party politics. But when you look back on what contribution maybe I have made, my greatest contribution I think would be that we helped create two-party politics in the South that led to all these great things that are happening today. And, we, you know, part of it is happening right now. Uh, meeting terrorism with the force that we are able to meet it with, we could never have done that had we continued to drift along in one party in the South. I think here in South Carolina, people need to understand one of the things Jim Edwards needs to be remembered for is the Education Finance Act, which makes eyes glaze over every time I talk about what the Educational Finance Act is. They don't seem. I didn't to, know you knew anything about it. <laughs> they don't seem. To, I'm impressed. Hey, you forgot I testified in that trial down in Manning. <laughs> you did. That's right. I did. <laughs> uh, they seem to, to not to remember that. It was you who first said that there were some counties who simply could not, no matter how hard they or how high they taxed their folks, and you can look today at places like Allendale and Hampton that have horrendous tax rates, but there's no tax base. Yeah, yeah. On a per capita basis, they're taxed far more than people in Charleston or Greenville or, or Columbia, and yet they still don't have the money yeah. for their schools. But it was a real problem then, and so you worked with the business community to put a little bit of pressure on the legislature because uh, legislature doesn't like to change things too they much. They don't like to take money from one county and put it into another. That's right. But you got the Educational Finance Act passed, which said that there should be a minimum education guaranteed to all children in South Carolina, regardless of where they live. And um, that really was the basis of modern public school financing in South Carolina. It really was. And, uh, you know, uh, it's funny, Every just about every governor has always put an emphasis on education in South Carolina because it's it's always been a problem, and it's going to be a problem for a long time. But uh, it's interesting how some governors are known as the education governor, like Dick Riley. Mm-hmm. He was known as the education governor, and more money was sent per student under that Education Finance Act that we passed when I was governor than the act that Dick Riley passed when he was governor. Of course, it's tapered off now as the years have gone by, and it's uh, it's probably not the same way it was the first five or ten years of it. No, but no. I'm proud of that, and I'm I'm also proud of the fact that our industrial development grew those four years. You're bringing me back to the state. And I'm yes, glad sir. you glad you you did do that. I knew you were interested in education, but how did you decide to take that particular tack? What all of a sudden made Jim Edwards think about the poor kids over in Clarendon County or Hampton County or Barnwell County? Walter Roger Kirk was my head of education. He was a, a teacher, mm-hmm. and he put together a group of people to analyze what the big problems were in, in education in South Carolina. And I could, I, my memory doesn't serve me well enough to tell tell you who was on that group of citizens that got together with Roger Kirk and and me later on. Uh, but we decided that one of the biggest problems is that. We just didn't have the base in some counties to afford adequate teacher pay. And so we went to work and created that uh, Education Finance Act and introduced it, and then we put our lobbyists together and the contacts together to get it passed. And But some schools, as I recall, some counties paid as little as uh, $80 or $90 per pupil back in those days. In other counties, we're getting $1,200 per pupil. Mm-hmm. We were in need of shifting some funds around. And uh, the fact that my mother and father were both school teachers, by the way, that made me uh, very interested in helping mm-hmm. the school teachers from, a, you know, from the historical standpoint. And uh, so I guess it just grew from, from that. And as you look across the horizon, even today, uh, when you look at the problems that face South Carolina, just about every problem facing the state can be solved through one thing, and that's education, adequate education. Yes, sir. And it's a very difficult thing to do when you have children who go home to to homes that have never had a book in the home. The mothers and fathers don't write or read, uh, don't, you know, don't have a lot of interest in it. And it's very difficult to take those children and inspire them to uh, to get an education, but we're going to have to do it. And I commend my friend Dick Riley for what he's done. 
and all the governors since then and all the legislature for what they've done because we've got to find answers to our education problems. It's a big, big spread, and it's getting worse. Educated people are getting more and more prosperous, and non-educated people are falling more and more behind. We've got to close that gap. And, of course, in this state, we have a real problem that's been taking place. Textile employment peaked during your administration, and it began to go down. And, of course, now it's less than half of what it was when when you were governor. And you get people who are in middle-aged or or older who are being put out in the workforce looking for employment, and they may have a high school education. They may not. People are being retrained, but a lot of them are having a very difficult time. There's a a great group out there having a very difficult time because we can't all flip hamburgers at, at you know at the McDonald's or Hardee's. Mm-hmm. We've got to find some some way to to create jobs, and that was one of the things that I really enjoyed doing. When I was governor, forty percent of the industrial workforce in this state were employed in textiles. Well, the textile business is uh, you know the, their jobs and other jobs, not just the textile business. These uh, low-paying uh, jobs that don't require an education are being sent to different foreign worlds to have it done there and then ship the product back to us. Did, did you get anything for Christmas that wasn't made in China? Uh, you know, <laughs> I doubt if I did. But uh, getting back to, to the years in the governor's office, that was one of the things that I was very, very proud of. The Freedom of Information Act was another thing that I worked very diligently to get, and I think that's been a big help to the state of South Carolina. Well, you know, that's and, interesting because we have um, – done programs here on freedom of information. We're media, but I, we really talked about it's mostly with the, the, the print media. But I had a suggestion from uh, an attorney who's Jay Bender, who's done a lot of work with First Amendment. He said, you know, really might want to call it the Open Government Act, because what you did with the Freedom of Information Act was open the government up to access to the everyday man and woman in the street. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I know sometimes that can get messy. Democracy is a messy <laughs> business. But, you know, if elected officials forget that they represent the people, I mean, our Constitution talks about the government is from the people, not the other way around. You're right, and some sometimes government officials have forgotten that, too. Yeah, they have. And so the FOI, I think we need to put that right up there with the EFA uh, as an accomplishment of the Jim Edwards administration. Well, well, thank you. I'll take all the credit because sooner or later I know I'm going to get the blame. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are other things that we did. You know, we every time that we get into a financial situation in the state, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I was the first person to ever uh, create a, a reserve fund. To every, At the end of every year, this, according to my reserve fund law that we got passed, at the end of every year, we have to put 5% of that year's uh, revenue aside in a, in a reserve fund to keep us from getting in trouble in future downturns in the economy. Mm-hmm. And on seven occasions, I think, or eight maybe, since I was I left the governorship, they've invaded that fund. And here recently, they, they took all the money out of the fund. I mean, there's no fund left. Mm-hmm. But if we continue to, to keep that fund, it will certainly help us uh, balance the ups and downs in our economy and also help preserve our AAA credit rating, which is very important when we start securing bonds to finance expansion. Well, let's let's just you know, say AAA uh, bond rating, credit rating. Uh, that's almost like talking about the EFIA. People sort of you know glaze over. But if our rating goes down, then if we have to borrow money to build schools or bridges or roads, the interest rates go up. And it costs the people of South Carolina more. That's correct. It's a big part of our budget today is the interest on the bonds. And so to preserve that AAA credit rating, you get a lower rate on your bonds so the people the people of South Carolina who are borrowing the money don't have to pay as much interest. And you just, just described it perfectly. I think that little uh, reserve fund that we required, uh, I think it did a lot to help us uh, in unstable times. And uh, Raymond Finch, who developed uh, Wild Dunes down in Charleston, Raymond Finch was a person. He worked for me in one part of the uh, governor's office, and he brought that to me. And uh, I thought, you know, gee, this sounds good to me. And so he went ahead, and we we finally got it passed. Now I'm not sure it was ever uh, built into the Constitution. It's it's not in the Constitution. It didn't pass that. We had it the year I left office. We were supposed to try to get it passed, and I think it failed. But uh, it should be built in the Constitution. Well, you know, I'm just thinking, uh, heaven forbid that um, 
a hurricane hits the state, for example, that can cause all sorts of expenses that aren't covered in the budget. That's right, and that's why it's so important to have a reserve fund in state well, government for just such occasions. And that's what this just reserve fund was, was about. That was part of it. You want to say anything else about the state before we move to the, back to the federal level? Well, you know, there there's so many little things that I that I enjoy doing. I guess uh, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we introduced some management techniques into government when I was uh, in the governor's office. Uh, for example, when I became governor, I asked the question, how many automobiles does the state own? Everybody went blank. Nobody knew. It resulted in the creation of the Motor Vehicle Management Office, which has saved that first year, I think it saved us $2.8 million just by restricting the use of automobiles. And during that investigation and trying to put together the, uh, that program, we found that uh, two automobiles that belonged to the state of South Carolina were being used in Florida by two of our employees' girlfriends. Not only, not <laughs> only that, they didn't just have the car, they had the credit card to go along with it. So that's just an example of what was going on. So I think we did a, 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 the state a good service by creating mm-hmm. the Office of, of a Motor Vehicle Management. Another thing we did, we reconfigured the telephones in the governor's office. And by just reconfiguring the telephones and bringing an expert in who understood billing of telephones, Tal Cruz, the late Tal Cruz, he's dead now, but Tal was a super expert in, in that kind of thing. I borrowed him from Roger Milliken. He ran Roger Milliken's communications operation. We, we borrowed him, brought him down here. And I think the first month he saved us uh, something like $1.2 million just with the telephones in the governor's office, the way that we were being billed and that kind of thing. So we brought him on board and resulted in our revision of our whole telephone system and uh, communication system at the state level. I've forgotten how much money we saved with that. And, you know, there are so many things that, that we, we did, little things. Oh, we've, we brought in a, a management team of five Harvard MBA-type mm-hmm. people. They may not have all gone to Harvard, but they all had their MBA, and they were sort of experts in various fields. We brought in this five-man management team and put them together, and we went out into the agencies and reviewed the agencies, how they how they could improve their management. And at first, it was not well-received at all. They thought we were looking for something. And when we finally convinced them that we just want to help them with their management and help solve some of the problems that they have and show them ways to improve management, uh, it was very well accepted, and I think uh, during the period that we were in office, I think it saved something like uh, five or six million dollars. And so uh, there are these little things that had to do with good, just normal business practices and improving the business practices of government that we uh, we finally uh, got it across, and we I think we resulted in a lot of savings. Even to today, probably some of those things are in place. And we at the time we were governor, we we had no real management the Budget and Control Board. We had a, a a person that sort of managed the business of the Budget and Control Board, and uh, Pat Smith was the, was mm-hmm. the treasurer back then. Pat was a, a great guy, very dedicated to South Carolina, knew where all the all the bodies were buried, so to speak, in state government. And we asked Pat if he would be the first executive director of the Budget and Control Board, and so we put some management techniques into the operation of the Budget and Control Board. And the Budget and Control Board is truly the governor. The, the governor of South Carolina has no power uh, to amount to much except that of general persuasion or not so general persuasion sometimes <laughs> if he wants to take it that far. Well, you never but, had to bring pigs into the house, though, right? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was cute, I must confess. <laughs> but... Um, where, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you said you were talking about the governor doesn't really have much power. Oh, the he doesn't, doesn't have board. much power, but the Budget and Control Board does. And we had a wonderful Budget and Control Board the whole time I was there. Of course, we had Rembert Dennis, who was Senate Finance Committee, and we had Tom Mangum, who was uh, and Goat Lamont originally, who was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And then we had Earl Morris, and then we had... Uh, had uh, Grady Patterson was a terrific guy. And Grady, by the way, I want to give Grady uh, credit for helping get that uh, that reserve fund set aside. Grady and I worked extremely closely together and, and worked hard to get that put together. And so Grady uh, did a great, great service for the state in helping to put that together. But we had a good budget and control board, and it was fun. You know, we were trying to solve problems. Everybody there was, was willing to get on board with us and 
and put the shoulder to the wheel, and together we I think we did some nice things for the state of South Carolina. Well, of course, one of the nice things you did, um, <clears throat> and this was, well, I guess really Ann did it, uh, and that was creating the Governor's Mansion Commission. Excuse me, Foundation. She did, and another great thing she did, she recruited some historians from around the state to help her write a book on the history of the Governor's Mansion, and you were one of the lead (laughs) historians there. And I'll I'll always be grateful for the help you gave, Anne, you and Dr. Terry. Well, I guess that that whole experience, nobody ever done that before in South Carolina. We pulled it all together. But it was a a far different world, you know— a few, a few months ago, we talked to Josephine McNair and how things were back in the, the 60s. And even in the 70s, things were fairly casual. You know, I can remember one night, I think it was even during a Thanksgiving weekend, we were trying to get this book out. And either you or Ann called and said, can you come over to the mansion? And I, you know, it's about 8 o'clock at one night. I get in my car, go over there, and I wave at the highway patrolman and going into the mansion i mean that was i mean now you'd been there so often they knew you (laughs) (laughs) but you know now now even if they know you 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 know you've got to identify yourself you know it's 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 a different it's a different world yeah um and it's sad because it was so nice the other way it 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 really was but Um, the world has changed too you know walter the uh the, the people, you know, when you think of people who are willing to give up their life flying an airplane into one of our great buildings and and destroying, you know, one of the great landmarks of the world, and, but just flying into it, I just can't imagine anybody doing that. And so this terrorism is one of the things that really, um, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night wondering what, what we should do about it. But I think, I think we've got good leadership trying to do the right thing. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today our program is an encore presentation of a conversation I had with the late Governor James Edwards. Governor Edwards died in his Mount Pleasant home on December the 26th. Let's talk about Jim Edwards after the governorship. You go back to Charleston, right? Went back to my practice, oral surgery practice, and... uh... It was right interesting, Walter. Uh, I had a terrific practice when I left Charleston to become governor. And I figured, well, as being governor, I, f- I should have even a better practice when I get back home. And I opened my doors to my practice and no patients came. <laughs> and I put an announcement in the paper and no patients came. And finally, you know, I really was about broke because uh, as governor, I think I had a take-home pay of $22,000 a year for the four years. And had two children in college and uh, the usual and customary cost of living. And uh, so I was right worried. And uh, so I started moving out and visiting my dental colleagues. And mm. and uh, pretty soon they started coming. And as my first patients, uh, several of them told me, said, uh, Dr. Edwards said, I, I wanted you to do this, but I wanted you to to get a little more experience since you were away four years before you started doing my surgery for me. <laughs> so anything that was elective, they put off for a while until I got a little more used to doing surgery again. And, but finally, we, we got it all built back, and about six months later, we were in full swing again. And, and I was paying off my bills. My banker was beginning to smile at me when I met him on the street again, which made me feel good. And, and uh, so I never dreamed that I'd ever do anything politically and never you know I never started to be started out to be in political life anyway I love it I love it now and, and you, I still and you, know. you and you are very good at it people again we're going back to 1979 when you left office but you had an extremely high approval rating well thank you uh, and, and that's true because and, and I've got it framed I put up on my bed. See that? <laughs> <laughs> it was better. It was better than seventy-five percent. I don't remember exactly, but I remember it was it was better than three quarters of the population. You know, your, your approval rating was was off the top. And again, this was a state that was still considered. It was bipartisan, but certainly was considered uh, Democrat. Democrat. Yeah. And um, Walter, I appreciate you you making that point because. Uh, but anyway, I, I did have a very good favorable. You, you, you well, you were a good politician. Rating, but. Well, I don't think I was a good politician. I was a good servant of the people, and I guess that's what I love people and always have, and I like to do things for people and help people. But anyway, we would get, let's get back to the to the point we were trying to make. Uh, I finally started <clears throat> eating a little higher on the hog than I had the first few months I was out uh, in practice, and practice was going well, and I was back in it for about two years. 
and uh, I worked for Reagan, and uh, we had a little break in our relationship when uh, John Sears finally came to the top as his manager, and I had told him a year and a half prior to that, told President Reagan, Ron Reagan, when before he was president, that if Sears was going to run his campaign, I didn't want to get involved because I thought Sears had, you know, had just blown it and had given away the the nomination to Jerry Ford in '76 and. Sears was not a, a person that paid attention to details. He's sort of a party guy, and he uh, let things drag and didn't re- really run a tight campaign. But anyway, I told Ron, I said, Ron, if, if Sears going to run it, I want to tell you a year and a half ahead of the campaign that I'm not going to, my emotions in this thing and have them dashed by somebody like Sears messing up the campaign. And he said, well, Jim said, I promise you Sears won't run the campaign, but he'll be a part of it. And I said, well, what part of it will he be? And she said, well, he'll be a part of it, not a major part. And so I said, all right, I'll stick with you. Well, the way it happened, as the campaign progressed, uh, Sears got rid of everybody in the campaign but him. He got rid of Meese, got rid of uh, all, all of Reagan's old friends, you know, uh, and colleagues that served him so well as governor of California. Got rid of all of them, and he was in charge. And he advised... Uh, Ron not to go into Iowa. He was trying to make a liberal out of Ron. Ron would make speeches, and his heart weren't in his speeches. And uh, I called him up. I said, Ron, you know, I told you that uh, I was going to leave the campaign if uh, Sears were running it, and I'm leaving you. And I said, I've talked to Strom Thurmond, and Strom is inclined to go with Conley. And I said, it's breaking my heart, Ron, but I'm just not going to do it. And so it was the following week. I went ahead and announced that I was going to support Conley, and so did Senator Thurman. And this was in the Republican presidential primary. Republican presidential take primary. back to, to yeah. 1980. I'm, I'm jumping around. I appreciate okay. you keeping okay. me straight for the listeners that may be listening. <laughs> that it was a Republican presidential primary. But anyway, the following week, he fired Sears after I left him. And when it was a debacle in Iowa, as I recall, I don't remember the details, but he was moving in. Yes, to George Bush won. George Bush won senior. the Iowa. That's right. And he was going into New Hampshire. And that's when he got rid of Sears. And after that, Ron became himself again. He was a conservative, good, you know, upright guy. And, and he was happy and contented. And his speeches just switched entirely. To make a long story short, he wiped him out in New Hampshire and came to South Carolina where I had been working for him for years. I was an admirer of his since the 68 convention. I tried to get the nomination for Ronald Reagan in 68, but it was all wired for Nixon by that time. And I often wondered what would have happened had we been successful. And we were closer to it than most people will ever know. It's a lot of little details there. That Actually, could... Strom Thurmond had a lot to do with Nixon getting that nomination. <clears throat> Well, Harry Dent and I had an agreement. Harry's inclination was to go with Nixon. My inclination this was... This is back to 68 now. Back to 68. Harry Dent was uh, was inclined to go with, with Nixon, and I was inclined to go with Ronald Reagan. I love Ronald Reagan, what he stood for, the way he'd uh, behaved and, and what he'd done for California. He was just a sincere, wonderful guy that knew instinctively the right thing to do. You know, he had those uh, that internal sense of, of what was good and and what would sell. And I was sold on it. But anyway, this had never been told probably before. That's good. But uh, (laughs) we we had this agreement that I'd work for Reagan and he'd work for Nixon. So this is, we were going down to the 68 convention. I had a presentation to the Southern delegation, all the delegates to the National Convention from the South in one big room. And they were they were sort of in, enamored with Reagan, too. But I made a presentation, probably the best political speech I ever made. I'm not very good at that kind of thing, but I had my charts and all the uh, numbers of the Electoral College, you know, up there, and I could explain how Ronald Reagan could win it and, and Nixon may not be able to win it. And uh, Harry Dent got John Mitchell over, and he told John, said, John, the Southern delegation is about to go with Reagan, and the only person that can win it for Nixon is Strom Thurmond. And he said, you better come over here and see what's going on in this southern delegation meeting. He said, Jim Ed is going to talk to him at such and such a time. And sure enough, 
about five minutes before we started, here comes John Mitchell smoking his pipe and Harry Dent. He went back down the left side of the, the auditorium back in the back and stood there puffing his pipe, and I made my presentation. And uh, my presentation was, let's go with Reagan, you know. Yeah. Uh, to, as soon as I finished, John and, and Harry Dent took off, almost running down the side of the auditorium and out. And of course, Harry Dent and I were communicating, you yeah. know. When uh, President Nixon arrived that yeah. afternoon, mm-hmm. he arrived, and the first person on that plane was Strom Thurmond and Harry Dent. And they stayed on the plane for about 45 minutes before Nixon got off. Strom Thurmond got a lot of concessions from Nixon before he even got off the plane. And Strom Thurmond came back and talked to the Southern delegations and told them that he would endorse Nixon totally, that uh, he had was satisfied with the answers he got from him, and he urged all the Southern delegation to stay with Nixon. Mm-hmm. And it would have just a little bit, a misstep somewhere along the way, and we'd have had Reagan the nominee that at that convention. Mm-hmm. And it all hinged right there on that, at that moment. There were a lot of Southern delegates that were ready to break with Reagan. Some of them did go with Reagan, but, but not enough. Mm-hmm. And even years later, uh, I was having lunch with Strom, just the two of us down in Charleston. I said, Strom, I want you to tell me exactly what Nixon, what he told you on that plane. And he just talked in generalities. He may not have remembered it himself, what he told him, but he, he said, well, he made a lot of concessions to the South, and, and I was pleased with what he said. And, and he was, he said, he was kind to the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think he was. Now, we're back to 1980, Governor, and after Conley's defeated in the primary here in South Carolina, you get back with the Reagan team. After that, uh, he won the primary, and Reagan called me and said, uh, said Jim, I, I, I need you. I hope you'll help me in the general election. I said, I'm delighted to be back home. I never wanted to leave in the first place, Ron, and I'm delighted. Mm-hmm. said, let me know what I can do. And so I worked for him uh, through the election. And after that, uh, I had no idea that I'd ever be a part of any presidential cabinet. And I was hunting with a group of people down at uh, Santee Reserve, and I got a call from uh, Paul Laxall and said, Jim, uh, he calls Ron the boss. He said, the boss wants you to be part of his administration, and uh, what would you like to do? I said, Paul, listen, I, I didn't support him in the primary. I, surely this, you're pulling my leg. I said, I never expected to get a call like this. And he said, no, he really wants you to be part of the administration. And I said, well... Paul, I guess if, if there's anything I would be best qualified to do, it would be Health and Human Services. And if he really wants me to, I'll, I'll, I'll look at that. i consider it. I said, i got to talk to my wife first. And uh, he said, well, I can understand that. I said, all right, I'll be back in touch. Well, he called me back the next morning and said, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, Schweiker has this appointment. He had promised it to Schweiker, and, and uh, it's already been made, and I'm sorry. I said, well, that's all right. You know, I was kind of relieved because I'd, I'd just gotten my practice going, you know, paying my bills again. And, uh, and Ann was very happy at your new house. There. Ann was happy at the new house, absolutely. We had moved into the new house, and it, it was beautiful, old, and an, full of an, antiquity. Not many antiques, but the house was one of antiquity. But anyway, we were very happy. But uh, got uh, got that call, and so I was kind of relieved, and I said, well, I'm happy about that, Paul. And Paul said, uh, well, wait a minute now, we, we don't be too happy because we got another job for you. He said, the boss has uh, realized that you were very active in nuclear energy when you were in the governor's conference. I was chairman of the, of the subcommittee on nuclear energy of the National Governor's Conference, and we had written the agreements by which we were supposed to have shared burial sites and that mm-hmm. kind of thing in various states, and apparently he liked that. Ron was a pro-nuclear mm-hmm. person. And I, of course, have always believed in nuclear energy and still do. Anyway, uh, he said he wants you to come up and take over the Department of Energy. And I said, well, pause a minute. He said, and by the way, he wants you to close it down if you can. (laughs) And so I said, Paul, that sounds exciting to me. Let me talk to Ann and I'll call you back. And so I talked to Ann and, and struggled with it for about six or eight hours at home wondering what we'll do and how we do it and if we should do it. And I finally reached a conclusion that, you know, not many people uh, get an opportunity to serve in a, governor, in a president's cabinet. So uh, 
I said, I'll probably regret it the rest of my life if I don't say yes. So I said yes, and you know the rest of the story. And you were there, what, a couple of years? <laughs> there, two years. Yeah, I told Ron that I could only give him two years. He said, well, you can close it down and get out of there in two years. I said, yeah, I'll do the best I can. <laughs> and by the way, we did have a plan to close it down and divide it and take different parts and put it back in different other agencies, but the Democratic Congress was in control, and they wouldn't let us. Governor, we're unfortunately about to run out of time. I think we could talk another hour or so on some of these anecdotes that you're remembering. That I, I, I've known you a long time. I knew Senator Thurman. Some of these things I'm hearing for the first time, and as a historian, that's, that's really exciting. It's been a pleasure having you on the journal today, and um, we'll have to have you back again to talk about some more of these stories about South Carolina history. Walter, thank you so much. Ann and I admire you so much. It's always a pleasure being with you, and we love your books, all your books, and, and uh, we just appreciate all you've done for South Carolina, too. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's encore presentation of a conversation with the late Governor James Boris Edwards. Jim Edwards was one of South Carolina's true elder statesmen, and personally, he was a friend, a very close friend. And I know I speak for many, many South Carolinians who will say, Jim Edwards will be missed. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's Journal are their own and are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.